This is a recording of Book of Mormon Minimalists and the Nehem Inscriptions, a response to Dan Vogel, by Neil Rapley and Stephen O. Smoot, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 8, 2014, pages 157 to 185, read by Stephen O. Smoot. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Book of Mormon Minimalists and the Nehem Inscriptions, a response to Dan Vogel, by Neil Rapley and Stephen O. Smoot. Abstract. Biblical minimalists have sought to undermine or de-emphasize the significance of the Tel Dan inscription attesting to the existence of the House of David. Similarly, those who might be called Book of Mormon minimalists, such as Dan Vogel, have marshaled evidence to try to make the Nehem inscriptions from South Arabia, corresponding to the Book of Mormon Nahum, seem as irrelevant as possible. We show why the Nehem inscriptions still stand as impressive evidence for the historicity of the Book of Mormon. The debate over the historicity of the Hebrew Bible's depiction of the Davidic monarchy reignited over an important archaeological discovery that surfaced in northern Israel in 1993-94. The so-called Tel Dan inscription, a basalt stela written in Aramaic and dating to the 9th century BCE, was highly significant in that it was the earliest non-biblical attestation of Beit David, or the House of David. The significance of this discovery lies in the fact that it challenges the arguments of biblical minimalists, or scholars who assign minimal value to the historical reliability of the Hebrew Bible, who wish to relegate the biblical depiction of the Davidic kingdom to myth. Joseph Garfinkel, writing in the Biblical Archaeology Review, has summarized how this discovery undermines the minimalist argument by noting that the inscription is clear evidence that David was indeed a historical figure and the founding father of a dynasty. There was a David, he was a king, and he founded a dynasty. What's more, Garfinkel observes that the minimalists reacted in panic, leading to a number of suggestions that now seem ridiculous. Ultimately, says Garfinkel, minimalist arguments can be classified as displaying paradigm collapse trauma, that is, literary compilations of groundless arguments masquerading as scientific writing throughout footnotes, references, and publications in professional journals. Perhaps Garfinkel is somewhat exaggerating the significance of the Tel Dan inscription and its evidentiary weight against minimalist arguments. While significant, the Tel Dan inscription cannot be seen as proof, per se, of the historicity of David's dynasty, though it is compelling evidence for such. Significant scholarly debate revolves around the importance of the, of the Tel Dan inscription. Most scholars would concede that the discovery offers evidence for the historicity of the Davidic kingdom, and that attempts to avoid any possible reference to a historical David stem from a form of skepticism at odds with all known ancient practices. Regardless of one's conclusions about the Tel Dan inscription's significance, Garfinkel's comments about the minimalist reaction to the Tel Dan inscription calls to mind a similar attitude of those who might be called Book of Mormon minimalists, that is, scholars who assign little to no historical value to the Book of Mormon. One sees this attitude in reaction of some scholars to the Nehem altar discoveries, which have been hailed by others as the first archaeological attestation of a Book of Mormon toponym besides Jerusalem. Dan Vogel, a biographer of Joseph Smith, 
exemplifies this minimalist reaction in his 2004 account of the prophet's life. Vogel, who has usually proven to be one of Joseph Smith's more informed critics, dismisses the significance of the Nehem inscription for the Book of Mormon's historicity on five grounds. 1. What need was there for a compass if Lehi followed a well-known route? 2. The Book of Mormon does not mention contact with outsiders, but rather implies that contact was avoided. 3. It is unlikely that migrant Jews would be anxious to bury their dead in a heathen cemetery. 4. There is no evidence dating the Arabian Nehem before 8600, let alone 600 BC. 5. The pronunciation of Nehem is unknown and may not be related to Nahum at all. We will argue for the weakness of Vogel's five objections, which parallel the sort of reaction the biblical minimalists exhibited over the Tel Dan inscription discovery. 1. What need was there for a compass if Lehi followed a well-known route? Here Vogel seems to be referring not to the correlation of Nahom per se, but rather the popular notion that Lehi was following the frankincense trail, which leads generally south-southeast, the direction Lehi's party traveled. It then turns eastward around the Nehem tribal territory, where the altars were found, which is also consistent with where Nephi reports they changed course and did travel nearly eastward. Asking why a compass was necessary seems akin to asking why one needs a GPS when traveling in an unfamiliar city. After all, it has well-known, clearly marked roads, and even helpful road signs for direction. The mere presence of roads, however, does not eliminate the need for navigation. Lehi was an unfamiliar territory, and the Lehona led him and his family to where the Lord wanted them to go. While Lehi may have known of the frankincense trail, there is no reason to assume he had previously traveled it before, and thus would have known the route. Vogel's argument seems to assume that Lehi was a caravaneer, who would have therefore frequently f- traveled this way. This idea was made popular by Hugh Nibley, but has more recently fallen out of favor. In light of more recent evidence, it seems more likely that Lehi was a metal worker. This has some interesting implications when it comes to travel routes and the use of the Liahona. When traveling from Jerusalem to the Red Sea, and then a short three-day stint to get to the Valley of Lemuel, Lehi and his family apparently did not need the Liahona. Jeffrey R. Chadwick offers this explanation. Why did Lehi and Nephi seem to have readily known the way from Jerusalem to the Red Sea, the Gulf of Elat, and then back without the aid of Liahona, which was later needed in Arabia? The fact that copper ore was mined in several locations near the Gulf of Elat and in northern Sinai, could suggest that Lehi and Nephi had traveled to the region several times over the years to obtain copper supplies and knew the route well enough prior to their permanent departure of Jerusalem in 1 Nephi 2. If Chadwick is correct, then Lehi and his family would have probably been in unfamiliar territory once they traveled past that point into the Arabian deserts, which explains the sudden appearance of the Liahona. LDS researchers have frequently noted that the roads and trails are not clearly marked along the route. S. Kent Brown explains, It is not really possible to speak of a single trail. At times, this trail was only a few yards wide when it traversed mountain passes. At others, it was several miles across. In places, the trail split into two or more branches that, at a point farther on, would reunite into one main road. After not only researching but also traveling along the trail, Lynn and Hope Hilton made this same point back in 1976. Similarly, 
Warren and Michaela Aston also both researched and traveled to the area and made a similar observation in 1994. Most recently, after both research and travel, George Potter and Richard Wellington made the same point in 2003 as a response to the very question of needing the Liahona. One might ask, if they traveled along a trail, why do they need the Liahona to show them the way? They could have just walked along the road. One needs to understand that the Frankincense Trail was not a road in the sense that we are used to. There was no delineated trail along which to walk. It was simply a general course that would take one to the next caravan halt in water. Lehi would have needed a guide, and for those times that the family was traveling alone, the Liahona was capable of taking a guide's place. There are a number of reasons why Lehi may have needed navigation despite following a trail. While interaction with some people would have been necessary and inevitable, the Liahona may have helped the group avoid marauders and others who would have been hostile towards Lehi and his family. Besides simply getting them from waterhole to waterhole, the Liahona may have helped guide them to where there would have been the most available game for hunting. Lastly, the group's final destination, Bountiful, was not necessarily where the trail would ultimately lead. Thus, they needed navigation to find it. Nevertheless, questioning why the Liahona was necessary misses the point entirely. As noted, navigational aids are necessary with or without roads and trails, and for a number of reasons. The Frankincense Trail is significant not because it provided Lehi and his family with a means to navigate the region, but rather because its existence shows that travel through the arid desert in the direction claimed by the text is completely possible. It means that absolute necessities, such as water and food, were available. Although they have never been to Arabia, Ed J. Pinniger and Richard J. Allen capture the importance of this quite well. Imagine struggling to survive in the midst of an immense and hostile desert environment reflecting an ominous sameness in all directions. We are heeding the directive of God to attain a promised land of safety, but how far away and in which direction? Our provisions are strictly limited. Where do we turn, meanwhile, for nourishment and water? Survival in the desert is not a given, and Lehi could not have carved out a route for himself without water. The trail provided the necessary means for water and nourishment, as Potter and Wellington, who have traveled the course, explain. This course of the Frankincense Trail can be explained in one word, water, the most precious commodity of all to the desert traveler. In wondering why travelers along a trail would need navigation, Vogel has completely missed the significance of that trail. Even in the most stable of times, Brown reports, Trudging off into the bowels of the Arabian desert invited a swarm of troubles, what with a lack of water, food, and fuel. The frankincense trail provided for those needs. If Joseph Smith did make this up, then he coincidentally sent his group packing off into the only direction where long-term travel was possible in what one party has called the most hellish terrain and climate on earth. Vogel's minimalist approach fails to interact with these realities of desert travel. He needs to explain how Joseph Smith knew where to have the group travel and when to turn eastward toward the interior of the desert. 2. The Book of Mormon does not mention contact with outsiders, but rather implies that contact was avoided. Without any actual references to the Book of Mormon, it is hard to know what Vogel means by saying that it implies contact was avoided. We assume that Vogel has in mind the statement in 1 Nephi 17.12, that the Lord 
had not hitherto suffered that we should make much fire as we journeyed in the wilderness. It is certainly true that more than a few LDS scholars and researchers have read into this passage the implication that they were trying to avoid contact. Notice, however, that this is not mentioned until after they have passed through Nahum, and several scholars have suggested that the conditions of the area east of the Nihim territory explain why they would want to avoid contact. For instance, Aston suggests that only after Nahom are they traveling in less populated areas, and hence, as a small group, would be more vulnerable to desert marauders. Brown, meanwhile, reasons that it is because they are now traveling in hostile territory where contact might be dangerous or detrimental. In either case, the actual implication is that they had greater contact with others during earlier parts of the journey. What's more, although it is certainly common, that is not the only interpretation of 1 Nephi 17.12. It could also simply be as a meaning that burning fires simply had not been necessary. Jeffrey R. Chadwick responds to both Aston and Brown on this matter. Nor do I think that the avoidance of fire was at the Lord's command. Although Aston suggests it was the Lord's instruction to make much fire, and Brown mentions the commandment that Nephi's party not make fire, this language is not in the text of 1 Nephi itself. What Nephi specifically wrote is that the Lord had not hitherto suffered that we should make much fire as we journeyed in the wilderness. While the term suffered could be understood as allowed or permitted, in the context of the passage, it could also be understood as Nephi attributing to the Lord the fact that, for practical reasons, they had simply not made much fire on their journey. There are three quite practical reasons why Lehi's group would not have made much fire. One, the availability of firewood or other fuel was not consistent, and in some areas where few trees and shrubs grew, kindling would have been largely absent. Two, the party would often have traveled at night, particularly in the hot months, which means that their resting hours were during the daylight, when no fire would be needed for visibility. Three, they cooked very little of their food, animal meat or otherwise, which seems obvious from the Lord's promise, I will make thy food become sweet, that ye cook it not. So 1 Nephi 17.12 need not necessarily imply anything about avoiding, avoiding contact with others. Of course, none of this may matter since there is no telling whether Vogel had 1 Nephi 17.12 in mind or not. However, we are unaware of any other passage that potentially implies any kind of effort to avoid contact with others, and Vogel needs to do more than just make an assertion here. On the other hand, almost everyone who has commented on Nahom has pointed out that the use of the passive voice in 1 Nephi 16.34, in contrast with all other place names in 1 Nephi, which are actively given by Lehi and company, implies that it was a pre-existent place name, which naturally implies that there were people there. S. Kent Brown makes note of this, and other facts which suggest Lehi was traveling among others. The expression, the place which was called Nahom, indicates that the family learned the name Nahom from others. In addition, when family members were some 1,400 miles from home at Nahom, some knew that it was possible to return, even though they had run out of food twice. Evidently, family members had met people making their journey from South Arabia to the Mediterranean area. Furthermore, the Lord's command to Lehi about not taking more than one wife, if Lehi received it in Arabia, 
may point to unsavory interaction there. Moreover, Doctrine and Covenants 33.8 hints that Nephi may have preached to people in Arabia, although the reference may be to preaching to members of his own traveling party. Vogel ignores these and other reasons given by LDS scholars for implying interaction with others and provides a truly minimalist reading. What is not explicitly mentioned in the text is simply not there at all. Meanwhile, Aston, Brown, and Chadwick each provide readings that realistically situate the text in real time and space. Vogel needs to engage these arguments if he wishes to assert that the record implies that Nephi and his family avoided contact with others. 3. It is unlikely that migrant Jews would be anxious to bury their dead in a heathen cemetery. Our first objection to this claim is that the Book of Mormon says nothing about Ishmael being buried in a heathen cemetery. It simply reports that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahom. It is likely that Vogel is referring to the burial grounds at Nehem, which Aston has suggested may be where the families of Lehi and Ishmael buried the latter. Aston does note that the local people were pagans in the true sense of the word, but would that be in any way problematic? Vogel's argument rests on an assumption that is left unsupported by any evidence. Is there any biblical stipulation against the burying of Israelite dead in a heathen cemetery? The Law of Moses, as far as we can tell, offers no such proscription and announces only ritual impurity for those who come in contact with a corpse. Is there any evidence that ancient Israelites were opposed to the idea of burying their dead in foreign cemeteries? In truth, expatriated Jews like Lehi and his family had no choice but to bury their dead in the cemeteries of foreign lands. Joseph Modzajewski has called attention to the presence of cemeteries in Ptolemaic Alexandria and Leontopolis that served as the final resting place of Jews and pagans alike, and Leonard Victor Rutgers shows the widespread presence of communal Jewish Christian pagan cemeteries during the Roman era. What's more, besides evidently not being averse to burying their dead in foreign cemeteries, Pious Jews were also not averse to syncretizing some of the heathen burial practices and beliefs of their neighbors. The evidence discussed above is, admittedly, from a later time period, but this is only natural, as most of our knowledge of Israelite and early Jewish burial practices derives from the Second Temple period and later. We must therefore reject Vogel's assumption, as archaeological evidence contradicts it. If Lehi and his family were as pious as Nephi depicts them as being, to not have buried Ishmael in a heathen cemetery or otherwise would have been a grave theological and cultural offense, as the ancient Israelites considered it a horrifying indignity to leave a corpse unburied. What would be suspicious is if the Book of Mormon did not report on Ishmael's burial at this pivotal point in Nephi's narrative. 4. There is no evidence dating the Arabian Nehem before AD 600, let alone 600 BC. Here Vogel is simply wrong. The non-Mormon archaeologist Burkhardt Vogt of the Deutsches Archäologisches Institut, who is likely totally unaware of the significance of the Nahum altars for the historicity of the Book of Mormon, wrote in 1997 that the altars are an archaic type dating from the 7th to 6th centuries before Christ. Vogel was either unaware of this source or unable to read the French when he asserted in 2004 that there is no evidence for dating the Arabian Nehem before AD 600. We can perhaps forgive Vogel for overlooking Vogt, 
who published his findings in a foreign press and in a foreign language, but we cannot easily pardon him for overlooking the English sources published before his book, including one that he cites himself that also discuss the Nehem altars as predating 600 BCE. But the situation has only become worse for Vogel since his 2004 assertion, as Aston has recently documented additional inscriptional evidence placing the Nehem toponym before 600 BCE. Although more work on the dating of this inscriptional evidence needs to be done, there is no real controversy over the dating of the Nehem altars, which easily predate Lehi. Only minimalists like Vogel object to the dating, albeit on ideological, not scholarly grounds. 5. The pronunciation of Nehem is unknown and may not be related to Nahum at all. The tribe and territory of Nehem still exist in the area today, and local pronunciations range from Nehem to Nehum, and the name has been translated in a variety of ways, including Naham and Nahum. There is no reason Nahum should be considered beyond the pale. When written, Semitic languages do not need to include vowels, so the altars simply have NHM in South Arabian, and Nephi's record would have been no different. As such, no closer correlation in name could be asked for. As S. Kent Brown puts it, such discoveries demonstrate as firmly as possible by archaeological means the existence of the tribal name Nehem in that part of Arabia in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, the general dates assigned to the carving of the altars by the excavators. But Vogel adds a more specific objection here that deserves additional response. This last point deserves further comment, Vogel insists, as he raises his objection to rebut the theory of S. Kent Brown, who, according to Vogel, associates Smith's Nahum with a Hebrew root meaning to comfort, console, to be sorry, which they believe refers to Ishmael's death and burial, although the place was named before Lehi's arrival. Brown's specific argument, per Vogel's citation, is that, in Hebrew, the combination of these three consonants, N-H-M, points to a root word that can mean comfort or compassion. The meanings are different in the old South Arabian language. The reason Nephi mentioned this name while remaining silent about any other place names encountered on their trip, with the possible exception of Shazer, was likely because he considered that the existing name of the spot, comfort in his language, was evidence of the hand of the Lord over them, although Ishmael's own family, including Nephi's wife, seems not to have been at all positive. The Hebrew root in question is Naham. As a Nephal verb, it means to be sorry, to console oneself. And as a PL verb, it means to comfort, console. In its nominal form, the root means comfort or sorrow. Vogel's argument is that Brown's association between Nahom in 1 Nephi 1634 and the root Naham is untenable because the NHM on the altars and on an 18th century map are written with a soft H, whereas the root for consolation in Hebrew is written with a hard H. Vogel does not offer any sources for his assertion that an 18th century map renders Nehem with a soft H. We must turn, therefore, to James Gee who has compiled a number of maps from the 18th century that do mark the presence of the Nehem-Nehem region in South Arabia. The issue of the maps aside, 
The real problem with Vogel's argument is his assumption that because the Book of Mormon is a modern text originally composed in English, the soft H in Nahum therefore rules out Brown's intriguing suggestion of a play on words on the name of the Hebrew root Nacham, which Vogel correctly notes is not spelled with an aspirated He, but rather with the guttural Chet. This argument, however, only works insofar as one accepts Vogel's assumption that the Book of Mormon is modern. If, in fact, the underlying text of the Book of Mormon was the product of Hebrew-speaking Israelites of the 6th century BCE, then there is no good reason to rule out the likelihood of Brown's proposal, but good reason to accept it. If, in fact, the Book of Mormon's Nahum was originally written, or at least pronounced, with a chet, the question then arises as to why Joseph Smith rendered Nahum with a soft H and not a guttural H in his translation. The answer is actually quite simple. English lacks a guttural H. The closest vocalization English has that is comparable to the Hebrew guttural chet is a palatal ch or k, as in the ch in chaos or the k in king. A problem still remains for English speakers, though, as Thomas Lambden, in his prestigious Hebrew grammar, straightforwardly notes that there is no English equivalent for the Hebrew letter chet. As such, English translators, with no other recourse, are obliged to render the Hebrew chet with a soft H. Academic transliterations, such as those recommended by the SBL Handbook of Style, at least extend us the courtesy of transliterating chet with an H dot, so as to distinguish between it and he. Accordingly, there is no shortage of Hebrew words spelled with a chet that, as standard practice, are transliterated with a soft H in English. Words like Messiah, Hebrew Mashiach, and Hittite, Hebrew Chiti, and names including Mount Horeb, Hebrew Chorev, Nahum, Hebrew Nahum, Haggai, Hebrew Chagi, and Noah, Hebrew Noach, all feature a Chet that is simply rendered with a soft H in English. Of course, Brown is not oblivious to the fact that Nahom and the root Naham are vocalized differently. In Arabic and Old South Arabian, Brown writes, the letter H in Nihim represents a soft aspiration, whereas the H in the Hebrew word Nahom is the letter Chet and carries a stronger rasping sound. All Brown is saying is that it is reasonable that when the party of Lehi heard the Arabian name Nihim, however it was then pronounced, the term Nahom came to their minds. More recently, Stephen D. Ricks has similarly wrote, These etymologies of the Hebrew Nacham are not reflected in the geographic name Nehem because both contain the dotted H, not the simple H. Still, it is possible that the name Nahom serves as the basis of a planned words by Lehi's party that Nephi recorded. The wordplay suggested by Brown, Ricks, and others is reasonable. Such word plays are common in Semitic and ancient Near Eastern texts, especially on proper names. And words need not look or sound exactly alike in order to evoke such plays on words. In fact, Gary A. Rensberg suggests a similar bilingual word play in Genesis on the name Ham, Ham, where the Hebrew name is played off the Egyptian biconsonantal noun Hem, which can mean either majesty or slave. As Rensberg points out, Ham is the progenitor of the extent of the Egyptian empire during the New Kingdom, 
in Genesis 10.6, making Ham, symbolizing Egypt, the majesty or ruler of those territories. Likewise, in Genesis 9.20-27, Ham's son, Ke'anan, becomes a slave, Eved, to Ham's brothers because Ham saw Noah naked. This is interesting in light of the wordplay suggested for the Book of Mormon between the Hebrew Nahum and the South Arabian place name Nehem, not only because both are bilingual, but also because Rendsburg's suggested wordplay also involves different H phonemes, i.e. the H's sound different in the two words being compared. Rendsburg explains, True, the H of both Egyptian words majesty and slave is a voiceless pharyngeal H, whereas the H of the Hebrew ham, ham, represents a voiceless velar or voiceless uvular, that is, a Semitic che, a point that can be determined in the Septuagint transcription of the proper name as ham. But this issue does not militate against the overall conclusion that ham, ham, and ke'anan, Canaan, work together in the pericope to produce the desired effect. But even if we suppose that Vogel is right, and the idea of a wordplay between Nahom and Nechem is untenable, there is still the matter of the Book of Mormon correctly placing an archaeologically verified toponym at the right place and during the right time in South Arabia, which is something that Vogel does not account for in his arguments against the Book of Mormon. Does the Bible provide a simpler explanation? After raising his five objections, Vogel concludes, it seems simpler to suggest that Smith's Nahum is a variant of Naham, Nehum, or Nahum. Once again, though, Vogel's suggestion reflects a minimalist reading, which merely accounts for the presence of the word in the text. The connection between Nahum and the Nehem tribal territory, however, is much more intricate and complex than this. Both Nahum in the Book of Mormon and Nehem in southern Arabia match in the following interlocking details. 1. Both are places with a Semitic name based on the triconsonantal root NHM. 2. Both predate 600 BCE. 3. Both are places for the burial of the dead. 4. Both are at the southern end of a travel route moving south-southeast, which subsequently turns toward the east from that point. 5. Both have bountiful lands, consistent in 12 particular details, approximately east of its location. While the presence of similar names in the Bible might be able to explain the first of these correlations, it simply cannot account for all the ways the two places correspond. As Daniel C. Peterson once commented, Nahum isn't just a name. It is a name, and a date, and a place, and a turn in the frankincense trail, and a specific relationship to another location. Suggesting that Joseph Smith simply got the name Nahum from the Bible is an insufficient explanation of the correlation. Other Minimalist Arguments In addition to Vogel's attempted explanation that the name was just being pilfered from the Bible, others have also attempted to dismiss this evidence in ways that also betray minimalist readings. Some have suggested that Joseph Smith may have seen one of the 18th century maps already mentioned. There are several problems with this suggestion. 1. There is no evidence that Joseph Smith ever saw one of these maps. One online article counters by saying, there is also no evidence that he or one of his acquaintances 
did not have access to these sources. Though negative proof can, at times, be informative on a topic, positive claims like this come with a burden of proof. Historians don't entertain pure speculation simply because there is no evidence that something didn't happen. This tactic in this context is fallacious. 2. These maps were not accessible to Joseph Smith. The claim in the online article that Algaheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania is about 50 miles from Harmony is simply false. There is a Harmony, Pennsylvania that is close to 50 miles from Meadville, but the Harmony Township where Joseph Smith did most of the translating of the Book of Mormon is where Oakland, Pennsylvania is now located. Oakland is approximately 275 to 325 miles of travel from Algaheny College. 3. These maps have hundreds of toponyms. Why is Nahum the only one that shows up in the Book of Mormon, and how is it that Joseph Smith was so lucky that the one he just happened to pick is the only one that can be traced as far back as Lehi's day? 4. Even these maps give no indication of the eastward turn. 5. The maps do not show the presence of a place fitting the description of Bountiful. 6. These maps could not have informed Joseph Smith that the area would provide suitable burial grounds for a deceased member of the traveling party. In short, this theory leaves just as much unexplained as Vogel's appeal to the Bible does. Others have tried to diminish the significance of the correlation by suggesting that Nahum is a very common name. This has been done in two ways. The first is by suggesting that there are several locations along the Arabian Peninsula that have the root Nehem in their toponym, and insinuating that LDS scholars have been all over the map proposing these different Nehems as Nahum. This argument is flat out wrong. Writing in 1976, the Hiltons did not identify any toponyms with the root Nehem. A couple of years later, Ross T. Christensen first noticed one of the 18th century maps and observed, Nehem is only a little south of the route drawn by the Hiltons in 1976. In other words, though they were a bit farther in the north, the Hiltons had us already looking in the right general area. All proposals since then have been that the Arabian Nehem Nehem is the Book of Mormon Nahum. Warren P. Aston, who has presented on his findings on the Nehem tribe territory in an academic conference at Cambridge University, has stressed that there is only one place on the whole of the Arabian Peninsula with Nehem as a toponym. More recently, an attempt has been made to diminish the apparent significance by expanding the search for Nehems beyond the Arabian Peninsula to worldwide location. Chris Johnson explains, It's three letters. But what is the significance of the evidence for Joseph Smith as a prophet translator? What's the evidence? So here's the significance. We have a NHM in Germany, Austria, Iran, Zimbabwe, Angola, Israel, Canada, and basically everywhere you look, you can find those three letters. I'm sure there's a dozen companies named NHM that all around the world as well. NHM happen to be some of the most common letters. So the significance of NHM is lacking. The insinuation is that such names are so common that Nahum is lacking in statistical significance. Or, in other words, this kind of match could just be random chance. This argument, like Vogel's, reduces the evidence to just a name in order to make the name seem insignificant. This isn't simply a matter of how common NHM toponyms are today. 
the only NHM in the Book of Mormon, Nahum, shows up in a position along a path in relation to other places in a narrative set in the early 6th century BCE. It just happens to appear in the context that converges in location, date, and descriptive details with the only NHM toponym along the ancient Arabian Trail. Johnson needs to show the probability, based on how NHM toponyms were distributed circa 600 BCE, that one of them would show up in a position along a path that could be reasonably interpreted as fitting the narrative in 1 Nephi. Only then would all the appropriate factors have been accounted for, but to do so would also greatly reduce the probability of a random correlation and increase its significance, something Johnson does not want. Conclusion We've looked at Vogel's five points of argumentation on this matter, as well as the arguments of some others, and find them wanting. The discovery of the Nehem altars remains as, if not more, significant for the historicity of the Book of Mormon as the Tel Dan inscription is for the historicity of the Davidic kingdom recorded in the Hebrew Bible. Book of Mormon minimalists, like Vogel, will have to try much harder to dismiss this significant evidence for the antiquity of the Book of Mormon. For, as Brant Gardner comments, the data pointing to the connection between the Book of Mormon Nahum and the now-confirmed location of a tribe and likely place called Nehem are extremely strong. The description fits, the linguistics fit, the geography fits, and the time frame fits. Outside of Jerusalem, Nahum is the most certain connection between the Book of Mormon and known geography and history. Neil Rapley is a student at Utah Valley University working toward a BA in history with a minor in political science. He is a volunteer with Fair Mormon, an editorial consultant with Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, and co-recipient of the 2013 John Taylor Defender of the Faith Award. His main research interests are the foundational events in early Latter-day Saint history and the ancient origins of the Book of Mormon. He blogs about Latter-day Saint topics at http colon backslash studio at quoquefide.com. Stephen O. Smoot is an undergraduate student at Brigham Young University pursuing bachelor's degrees in ancient Near Eastern studies and German studies. We would like to thank Dr. Stephen D. Ricks, professor of Hebrew and cognate learning at Brigham Young University, for providing feedback on an earlier version of this paper. This has been a recording of Book of Mormon Minimalists and the Nehem Inscriptions, a response to Dan Vogel, by Neil Rapley and Stephen O. Smoot. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 8, 2014, pages 157 to 185, read by Stephen Smoot.